The world has gone crazy. There's no doubt that everything we ever thought was normal, everything we ever thought was right, has been turned upside down and on its head. Just look around. In this day and age, there are no ideas that haven't been challenged. In this world, there has been nothing that hasn't been used, abused, destroyed, thrown away, that we once thought were the pillars of the faith. Try as you might to bury your head in the sand like the proverbial ostrich. And yet, you can't get the chanting, the ringing of the voices of anarchy out of your head. They're everywhere. You just try to drive down the street of a busy city. And you can't help but see the destruction and chaos. Just the lunacy that is sold as change and revolution and a new dawning of a new age. A new age. This idea has been around for a long time. The concept that we can uproot ourselves and move from one position to another. In the dark of night, we can move from point A to point B and somehow no one will notice. What are we thinking as a society? What are we doing as a government. Today, there isn't a single idea that hasn't been floated and allowed to disintegrate into complete and utter chaos. On this episode, I'm not going to get into politics but politics religion spirituality all seem to be melting into the same goo melting into a mirage of indistinguishable concepts all sort of playing out in like a slow motion crash. Today, there are questions that we must ask. There is a moment in time, a tipping point, when we come to the realization that nothing we do, nothing we say, is without consequences. So let's get into these questions 
and try to discover the light within the darkness. First Samuel 28, starting with verse number 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly lamented. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her, and that I may inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul has done. Now he has cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore then layest thou a sneer for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw God's Elohim ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? 
And she said, An old man comes up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me. And answereth me not, no more, neither by prophets, nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee, and has become thine enemy. And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand, and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Because thou obeyest not the voice of the Lord, nor executeth his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Behind all ideas and all systems of thought lies the notion that individuals groups as society as a civilization is the idea that all things have a source all things have an origin in our day and age we like to think that things just happen uh, we believe that well if we think hard enough and we work hard enough the things just materialize out of nothing poof we come very close to doing that when we create movies Hollywood has given us the illusion that we can be anything we want to be and all we have to do is just change our clothes change our accents, learn some lines of script, and create a stage, and voila, we're in another world. The problem with this thinking is that it's fine and good when it's in Hollywood, and you know you're making a movie, a movie that may or may not be based on true facts or a live real episode of things that may have happened in real time most of the time Hollywood just makes up 
the world they want to create. This is apparent in most of our entertainment. Disney World, Epcot Center, Universal Studios, all those places we love to go to kind of forget about the real world for a while and be entertained and distracted by fun times. All of these wonderlands were created by geniuses with imaginations, which makes us beg the question, where does imagination come from? Where do thoughts come from? In Ephesians 6.12, the Bible tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. What if these verses were taken literally, were meant to be taken literally by the inspired writers who wrote under the inspiration of Theonustus, spirit-led ideas? What if in this world, the light and the darkness, which we see on a daily basis, actually originated from the same source. Isaiah 8.20 tells us that to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. We must keep in mind that in the Old Testament writings of the prophets, they understood there was a clear line between the light of goodness and the dark of evil. However, they also understood that not all darkness is categorically evil and not all light is categorically good. The framework, the context of Isaiah 8.20 is about those who speak and communicate with dead. Those who believe that dead spirits and dead souls can come back from the dead. That dead souls and dead spirits at death still exist. In the Old Testament, all of these ideas about spirits and souls and communicating with the dead. All these ideas were considered blasphemous and evil and wrong and unattainable. We must remember that even though the Old Testament has been translated numerous times into other languages such as Greek and Latin, the ideas the Old Testament have still stayed the same, whereas the ideas in the New Testament have been grounded in Greek mythology and Greek ideology, so that the ideas of light and darkness have essentially been reversed in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is very clear that if you speak not 
Isaiah 8.20 shows us that Isaiah was speaking about those who refer to communicating with the dead on any level, whether it be for good purposes or nefarious purposes. The God of the Old Testament forbids these types of communications. Why? Because God says there is no spirit, there is no soul to the human body. This is the original lie told in the Garden of Eden. This is the original lie supported by the Roman Catholic Church and the praying to saints for deliverance. This is the original lie which is used by fundamentalist Christians to establish their teachings on hell and Hades and the underworld. 2 Timothy 4 verse 4 says, And they shall turn their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. This word translated in English, fables, comes from the Greek word, muthos, which is where we get our word, mythos. So it is very clear that the Bible is saying that in the last days, there will be those who refuse to accept the fundamental foundational ideas presented in the Bible as truth, and they will prefer to hold and believe in traditions and fables. At this point, I know there's some of you who are just shaking your head, and you're asking yourself, how is this possible? Well, it's called the rules of the game. In order for us to function in life, we constantly make assumptions. These assumptions create for us a framework, and it is within that framework that we actually live our lives. Most of the assumptions that we carry with us, we don't even think about, but we use it to filter in and filter out ideas that we may or may not believe in. The problem with this kind of logic is the framework itself. Remember that Isaiah 8.20 has already said to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is the only framework that we should carry with us when we begin to analyze and understand what the Bible says. Assuming that some part of our life goes on indefinitely forever with no change and no stopping is the first and original lie of the serpent in the garden of Eden who said to Eve thou shalt not surely die any other conclusion which violates this singular primary position of truth out of the mouth of God as well as the serpent is very clear that we are now in the world of assumptions. 
But wait, I hear you say, isn't it true that we have a soul and that God is here to save our souls? And that when we die, we either go to heaven or we go to hell. At least our souls do. Let me be clear. The Bible in the very first book, in the book of Genesis, that means the Jewish Bible as well as the Christian Bible forbids the idea that after death you can still somehow in some form stay alive and live to go to some other location. This fantasy, this myth was originally taught by none other than Plato the philosopher. Plato said that the soul is older than the body therefore superior to it. This statement is nowhere found in Holy Scripture and it was given religious credibility when churches like the Roman Catholic Church and the Vatican declared it to be the absolute truth. The Southern Baptist Church and other fundamentalist Christian churches have adopted the idea that if you sin, you will go straight to hell for all eternity. Well, that assumes that you have some part of your body that doesn't die. You must have a soul to go to hell in the first place. The entire structure of life after death, going somewhere, living in heavenly bliss or abject horror and darkness, as the Egyptians taught in the land of the dead, we have taken these ideas and formulated assumptions which have created the fundamental building blocks and pillars of the current Christian faith. Oh, it's not just the Christian faith, but it is Islam and Judaism as well. All religions have adopted to a greater or lesser degree the ideas found within Platoism and Platonic thinking and philosophy. Greek mythology has invaded the entire world's religions. Make no mistake, the Bible condemns all such fables. Theurgy, the practice of calling on good gods and spirits with prayers and ritualistic practices to counter evil forces in nature, even demons, find a powerful influence in the Hellenistic world. Siegelman, in his formidable work on magic and the occult, tells us, Stranger still was the imprint which Neoplatonism left upon church dogma. However, it is not within the scope of this book to describe its evolution in the Christian church. It suffices to remember that St. Augustine and Platonus 
took being products of the same philosophic tradition had arrived independently at similar conclusions. The dogmas were formulated through philosophic methods and theologians and the Neoplatonists at times grew so closely together that they appear completely in accord. Again, Siegelman writing says, after the rise of Zoroastrian magicianism, Israel witnessed the collapse of her oppressors. When during the mid-sixth century, Mesopotamian might was shattered and the Persians rode into Babylon. 40,000 Jews returned to the now deserted and gutted Jerusalem. Through their political defeat, the Jews had lost faith in the stability of earthly things. God's kingdom was not on earth. Palestine, they recognized, was the crossroads through which marched the armies of powerful empires, and only the coming of the Messiah could free them from their political misery. Like the Zoroastrians, they were preoccupied with the life to come after death, unknown to the religion of Moses. Let me be clear. The ideas presented in the theories, philosophies, ideologies, theology of hell, the underworld, the afterlife to come, do not appear in the Bible holy scriptures of either Judaism or Christianity. But how is that possible? I hear you say. It's everywhere in the Old and New Testament. The words heaven, hell, spirit, souls, it's all there. The question you should be asking yourself is, how did it get there? Once again, it's about the rules of the game. So let me let you in on a little secret. The Bible, which we have brought to us in many languages, including English, has been translated by translators. Translators who were hired, paid by organizations, primarily churches, to rewrite the original so-called language Bibles or manuscripts and then to disseminate them in the language of their choosing. This process, once banned by the Vatican, has become big business in the modern age. Corporations such as the Livingstone Corporation, which has translated some of the most modern 
English versions such as the New International Version pay scholars to do nothing but translate, to look at old copies, manuscripts, and discuss the relativity of what they are looking at. Relativism has always been the method used by all translators over time in order to come up with the correct idea of what they think the translation should say in whatever language they're translating into. Sometimes this is done by one person. Sometimes it's done by hundreds of individuals comparing notes. But at no time are these translators looking at or analyzing or reading original manuscripts. Why? Because the original manuscripts don't exist. But the Vatican, as well as most fundamental churches and Protestant organizations, insist that the Bible is inspired word for word in English. Of course, when you point out that all of the many hundreds of English translations of the Bible have different English words in them, they say, well, one of them is more superior than the others. The Vatican goes so far as to say only the Latin version is absolutely word-for-word -word correct. Most fundamentalist Christians, Protestant organizations such as the Baptist, Methodist, Lutherans, they stick to the original 1611 King James Bible. Of course, when you point out that the original 1611 King James Bible can't be understood in modern English, it looks like something written in Greek, uh, they just kind of sidestep that issue and tell you, well, as long as it says King James Bible, every word is inspired. Ah, the rules of the game. But let me be clear, I'm not playing. The rules of the game extend into what we call inspiration. Theonoustos, the Greek word for inspiration or God-breathed. If you go to an online chat line, which is Q-U-O-R-A com, and you look under the question about was the Bible written in Latin, there is a response from an individual by the name of Gregory Matthews, who is the former chaplain at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs from 1994 to 2014. And he writes, we do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. All we have are copies of those manuscripts. We believe that what is commonly called the Old Testament was mostly written in Hebrew, with a very few sections written in Aramaic. We believe that what is commonly called the New Testament was written in Keon Greek. However, there are a few people, scholars, who suggest that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic. This position has been rejected by most scholars. Both the OT 
and the NT contain individual words from other languages. With the passage of time, the Bible was translated into other languages that people spoke. One of the oldest translations is the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. In time, the Bible was translated into Latin as Catholic priests could read Latin. As time went on, the Bible was translated into English, and today it has been translated into many other languages. At this point, it should be kept in mind that the translators themselves admit that they are not inspired in any way. So that whatever language we are translating the Bible into is clearly that process is not inspired. It is analytical. There's a huge difference. To suggest that the original manuscripts are inspired is to be disingenuous at best since the original manuscripts do not exist. We must also understand that assumptions and agendas at every opportunity are used by translators to tweak what they are translating. The original languages of the Bible, the Christian Bible, specifically the Old Testament, are very simple word formations which can be translated into English many different ways. For example, the word spirit or soul in English, or mind or heart, or breath or air, is translated from one word in Hebrew. So when theologians stand in the pulpit and say that a particular verse, specifically in the Old Testament, says your soul goes to the grave, goes to hell, they are being disingenuous at best. These theologians, fundamentalist Christians, know that the word could have been translated to simply mean air, or breathing, or breath, as in how you exhale, inhale. Or it could have been translated into the word mind, as in how you think. Or it could have been translated into the word heart, and how you feel. Let me be clear. Bible has already forbidden the ability of people to speak to the spirits, souls of the dead. In the translator's own words, these are not small names in the theological community. As an example, the Nelson New King James Version, printed by Thomas Nelson Publishers, has the names of Earl Radmacher, Ph.D., H. Wayne House, Th.D., J.D., and Ronald 
B. Allen, THD. Now, each one of these individuals in succession comes from Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, Michigan Theological Seminary, and Dallas Theological Seminary. And I quote, in faithfulness to God and to our readers, it was deemed appropriate that all participating scholars sign a statement affirming their belief in the verbal and plenary inspiration of scripture and in the inerrancy of the original autographs. This statement is taken from the preface to the New King James Version. It is absolutely clear that these translators, with their PhDs and doctorates in theology, do not want you to know that they know that they're being disingenuous, that they're lying to you about the fact that it doesn't matter if they all sign a statement believing in the inerrancy and the word-for-word inspiration of a translated Bible from one language to another language and that they believe the original manuscripts that don't exist were somehow perfectly written down word-for-word by God. Are they suggesting that maybe over millennia, thousands of years, that somehow maybe one or two of the words stayed in order? Maybe one or two of the words are actually the same exact words that were written down by the original writers? The inspired writers? Is that what they're suggesting? I don't think so. To complicate things even more, they are not even consistent with the types of words that they translate from one Hebrew word into an English word. Let me be perfectly clear. These individuals are lying to you about the translation process and what it means to have a book that is inspired by God. God did not inspire the words in any language, but rather, holy men of God spake as they were moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit impressed them with ideas, and they wrote these ideas down, and those ideas come to us even today in whatever language the Bible happens to be translated into. Some of the ideas are stronger in some languages. Some of the ideas are a little different in other languages. But because of the amount of writing that the Bible gives us, we still have a clear picture of what the ideas are in relationship to what we need to do in order to find the light of truth. Once again, as we already have seen, the Bible, the Word of God, forbids the art of speaking to the dead or to their spirits. The facts do not allow for this process to take place. Isaiah 8:19. And when 
they say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God, Elohim, for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The word translated gods in this verse is the Hebrew word Elohim. These same translators comment on this verse and the story of the witch of Endor and Samuel and Saul when Saul conjured up the so-called spirit of Samuel using the witch of Endor. The same translators making comment on this verse says, There is no inherent difficulty with God bringing back the spirit of Samuel from heaven and allowing him to appear to Saul in spite of the evil woman's profession. And continuing on, these same translators say, the words bring me up may be understood as meaning simply up from the grave. This phrase indicates that the Israelites believed in life after death. So these same translators that signed an agreement that oh, they would keep and adhere to the original perfect manuscripts that don't exist, as if they're so sanctimonious and holy, ignore all of the scriptures of the Old and New Testament where God forbids the speaking of people to spirits and souls of the departed dead because it's not possible. They say, oh, it's not inherently difficult for God to do that. Let's call down Samuel from heaven. But the phrase bring me up, meaning up from the ground, oh, that just simply means up from the grave. So which is it? Are they saying that Samuel is in heaven or is Samuel in the ground? Is he being brought up or is he being brought down? They just ignore that. And then they say, oh, well, that phrase just means up from the grave. The problem is the word Elohim. The word Elohim in Hebrew is used several different ways. It can be used for the God of heaven or the God of the underworld, as in Lucifer, Satan, the evil one. Traditionally, in Hebrew thought, anything that comes up from the dust is of the serpent's domain. Because in the Garden of Eden, God cursed the serpent and he said, On your belly you will go, and dust shall be your food. This is known in Hebrew thought as the curse of the evil one. It wasn't that real snakes eat dust. It was that Lucifer fallen angel was being banished to the earth and he would be in the dust as in trampled upon and ultimately defeated so when wizards witches necromancers and people that deal in the dark arts call up spirits they are not calling up the spirits of dead people 
but rather they're calling up the spirits out of the ground, which are none other than the spirits of devils. So understand, when these translators, these theologians with their PhDs from high-ranking theology schools say that it is no problem for God to send Samuel down to talk to Saul through the use of a witch, which is conjuring up evil spirits that come out of the ground. They are disingenuous and they are lying to you about what they know to be the truth. And that is, you can never speak to the dead, no matter who they are. Never mind that Samuel is dead, not in heaven. Now listen, as Glenn Beck on The Blaze Show explains that BLM founders believe that they speak to dead spirits. Did anybody, did anybody, was anybody practicing the dark art, and did that help them succeed? I mean, because generally, uh, success, you know, you don't want to be on the side of blatant evil, you know what I mean? Well, when you, uh, when you take a look at the dark arts, uh, it's usually, I'd say, always associated with evil, so again, not a great strategy, but the three BLM co-founders, each Marxist feminist, not an opinion, what they openly embrace, one of those co-founders is Patrice Cullers, along with Melinda Abdullah, who's the feminist professor and co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of BLM, they both employ worshiping and calling the spirits of the dead as a key aspect of BLM's social justice strategy. In June, the Berkeley Center, which is actually at Georgetown University, not the crazy California Berkeley, published an article uh, titled, The Fight for Black Lives is a Spiritual Movement. The article describes the Los Angeles chapter of BLM leading a ceremony in June in front of the mayor in uh, front of his house to demand the defunding of police. It describes how the BLM LA co-founder, Melina Abdul, uh, or Abdullah, said, quote, led the group in a ritual reciting the names of those taken by state violence for their name, ancestors now being called back to animate their own justice. They chanted George Floyd, Asse. I'm not going to read all of this because I don't want to. Anyway. Uh, it's like saying Candyman five times. Yeah, I just don't, yeah, you know. Don't want that um, as each name was recited, Dr. Abdullah poured libations onto the ground as the group of over a hundred chanted uh, a term uh, which um, a large group in South Af or in uh, West Africa use uh, uh, as practitioners of this this faith. Uh, and uh, basically, it's it's witch doctor uh, kind of stuff, uh, summoning uh, deities. So this is the religion of Black Lives Matter, and here is in June, Colors and Abdullah recorded. On a Facebook Live event, they talked about summoning spirits as part of their work. This is Dr. Abdullah. Listen. When we say the names, right, so we speak their names, we say her name, say their names, we do that all the time, that you kind of invoke that spirit, and then those spirits actually become present with you, right? The first thing that we do when we hear of a murder 
Mm-hmm. Is we come out, we pray, we pour libation, and we build with the community where um, the person's life was stolen. And it took almost a year for me to realize that this movement is much more than a racial and social justice movement. At its core, it's a spiritual movement. Oh, we're literally standing on spilled blood. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yes, it is a spiritual movement. Here she is again talking about how she laughs with one of the spirits that she summons. We become very intimate with the spirits that we call on regularly, right? Like each of them seems to have a different presence and personality. You know, I laugh a lot with Waikisha, you know, Mm. and I didn't meet her in her body, right? I met her through this work. Okay, so if, if we've been telling you for months, people keep saying Black Lives Matter, uh, but I, I keep telling you it's not what you think it is. Um, the BLM organization is fully anti-police, anti-capitalist, anti-family, pro-revolution, pro-Marxist, and now we find out apparently pro-summoning spirits and having a good laugh with them. And again, I want to thank Glenn Beck for bringing out these very, very important points. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It is clear that these social justice movements have a source of power, have an origin. But wait, apparently so do Bible translators who think it's no problem for God to use the witch of Endor to bring Samuel down to speak to Saul. So now, apparently, for fundamentalist Christians, it's okay for God to use a witch as long as you're bringing down a prophet's spirit. But if you're bringing back the spirits of other dead people, oh, then you're, then you're into voodoo. Then you're into dark arts. Let me make it perfectly clear. The Bible forbids the speaking to the spirits of the dead. Why? Because you can't do it. Why? Because dead people don't have spirits, don't have souls. So in fact, you are always speaking to the spirits of evil, the devil himself. You have been listening to The Dark Light. Thank you for joining us. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about The Dark Light Podcast. We would love to have you here each and every day to discover the light in the darkness.